This is the Enneagram 8 Podcast, and we're here to take you inside the armor. Welcome to the Enneagram 8 Podcast. I'm Jim Zartman from The Art of Growth, and I'm the one being interviewed today. (laughs) Take it away, boss. So the thing about the Enneagram 8 Podcast is we're just two eights in the trenches with you. Aaron and I have never pretended to be anything more than two eights doing life and starting to ask questions about what it looks like to come out on the other side of being really stuck in our eightness. But we're certainly not there yet. This year has been, I suppose you could say, a journey in the life of an eight from birth to surviving childhood, moving through adulthood, and ultimately continuing to grow further and further towards health until the day we die. We're closing out the season by asking the question, what is health? And specifically, what does health look like for an Enneagram type 8? Seeing as how Aaron and I are down in the trenches with you, it can't be us that answers that question. And so we started to look around and ask ourselves who we wanted to hear from. This is an interview with Enneagram type 8, Jim Zartman. He's been a voice that Aaron and I have followed along with from the very beginning. He is the co-founder of The Art of Growth. It's an organization that does group and individual Enneagram coaching. And he also is the co-host of the podcast, The Art of Growth, which has been incredibly helpful because they really specialize in showcasing panels of a type so that you can really get a sense of who they are. I still remember the panel of eights and how I zeroed in on one eight in particular. And it was her voice that I heard in my head. I thought, that's me. Believe it or not, Jim's voice is not the loudest over at The Art of Growth. On the podcast, you're going to hear a lot more from his seven co-host, Joel. And so Aaron and I really enjoyed talking to him on his own because he showed up in all of his full eight glory. We had a lot of laughs and at the same time tapped into all the depth and intensity that you would expect. Because in addition to being a co-host and a co-founder, Jim's also a poet and a songwriter. We hope you really enjoy this episode. I love it. I love the idea that we're talking to just eights. So I'm guessing that there's not a lot of editing of the self or the language on this journey here. No, I actually put a little caveat at the top of our uh, podcast that says we do not edit swear words. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you can't. Otherwise, no eights will actually listen to it. The desire to be strong lends itself to a desire for strong language. Yeah. You know, do you use a lot of body language? Like physical language. If you would have seen my hands just yes, now, yes. <laughs> I just looked down and I was like, I'm making claws. Why am I making claws? <laughs> yes. Yeah, there is a very a physical sense to the way that I communicate. Even in the way I write poetry, there's a very much an intensity, a physicality to the to the language. Yeah. Um, one of the first ones that I wrote in this series, which has very eightish empowerment language in it. I think I'm calling the whole collection and I would lift you. First one that I wrote was called Rise. It was very much in my voice. Let the stirring bring a burning for you were not made to hide. So move bold into the morning and rise. (laughs) When we were getting ready for the interview, I was souping out your Instagram. You feel so familiar to me. Mm -hmm. I think we have the same stacking. Are you social sexual? Yeah. Yeah. When I was going through a lot of the stuff you wrote, I actually sent a text to Joe and said, I'm going through this and 
I don't know whether to dive in deeper or stop because it's making me feel all the things <laughs> I think I've shoved deep down for so mm-hmm. long. I don't think I realized how much I was protecting till I started reading some of your stuff. Well, I totally understand that. I mean, that is our struggle, right? We don't want to really engage the heart in a way that makes us feel exposed or vulnerable. And the process and work to being willing to do that has just been honestly awful. Like I did not do it on purpose. I feel kind of forced into it. And it's like after being forced into it, I see the benefit of it and I'm good with it now. But I do not think, I honestly cannot say I would have gone here willingly. I think it had to be forced upon me. Like with a lot of growth and a lot of, you know, leaning into the heart space, like if I could have stayed away from it, I absolutely would have. I have zero heroic in me that says, yeah, I did this and I grew. And it's like, I did this because I was like, fuck, I cannot not do it. So I think just in honesty and transparency, yes, it is there, but it was not chosen willfully. (laughs) Yeah, I so relate to that. Um, I have, it's exactly the same for me. I would never have chosen to go this route, but I wouldn't choose to go back. (laughs) There was a freedom to not um, being super aware, but it also came at a cost. I just wasn't aware of the cost around me. Well, because other people were bearing it. And I think probably I didn't want to see it, right? So it took, it was physical for me, right? Like I I got wiped off my feet with no choice. It's been six years of kind of reflecting and my life is kind of before that and after that. Yeah, I have a few, what I would say, forced transformational moments. And two of them were health related. And then one of them was, you know, family economic related. So one of them was, you know, as a teenager, being kicked out of Christian school and having some severe intestinal health problems, probably due to stress and depression at the time. And I just knew every step I took in that place, my being was being resisted. And they didn't know how to handle me. And I didn't know how to handle me either because I was, you know, a teenager. And then there was in my early 20s, I had a botched surgery and I was basically on my back, mostly in bed most of the day for about two years. So all of my friends were like, they were in college, graduating, getting their first jobs. And I was like laid up for a couple of years. And then in my mid 30s, you know, being a mega church worship pastor, you know, doing what I had thought I had wanted to do. And it was one of those like climb to the top of the ladder to realize it's against the wrong wall and realize I don't belong. Like there was definitely people I belonged with, but I didn't fit into the subculture for many, many reasons. And then, you know, them bringing in a new leader and him seeing me as a threat. It was a staff of around 110 and I was the first of 26 leaders replaced. So I was number one on the chopping block (sighs) because I pushed back against um, what I saw as abusive. And he was removed for being an abusive pastor a few years later. later. And I was the first person to kind of stand uh, and call some of it out. But that, you know, meant we lost the direction we had been heading. And I was so fried by it that I couldn't do anything else for a while. So those moments were forcefully transformative. And one of my best friends, he spent some time with me after all that had happened. And he had been around me for years and then not seen me much for a couple of years. And then we were together just a few hours. And he just turned to me at one point. He goes, Jim, you're you're softer now. Like, what's going on? Because you're definitely softer now. But the thing is, with the eights, we go, well, then, yeah, let's crack it open. But the problem is, we struggle with denial. 
And so yep. we can often crack open and be like, well, this is what I want to crack open or this is what I should crack open because it's the hardest thing to crack open or whatever the drive may be. But we have to actually start with why are we denying it? Like, yes. why are we wanting to keep it down? Yeah. Like, what? why do I not feel safe? releasing mm-hmm. the fullness of myself. You know, for me, I was referred to emotions when I first started doing this work as the uninvited dinner guest that would just pop over. And I'm like, what are you doing here? Yeah. Like, yeah. I didn't invite you over here. Yeah, and I always say I didn't like, give you permission. <laughs> I didn't give you permission, right? Because yeah. I'm. it's another control feature. So mm-hmm. I had to learn to engage those emotions. And that's an ongoing process yeah. uh, to engage more and more of them in in. in you know, the broad, colorful spectrum that they can appear. But Mm -hmm. that was a struggle because I didn't want to crack it open because it felt like a loss of control. Oh, it's a full body assault. And and it's just such a strong feeling of invasiveness that you almost have to just like do little tiny teaspoons worth and sit in the burn of it and then just go, okay, acclimatize. All right, this is okay. And then do it again (laughs) until it becomes muscle memory, right? Because we we know what it is to like burn our muscles. We're like, okay, with that, somehow but we're not willing to like break our emotional muscles (laughs) so weird weird in a way but it also makes a lot of sense i know you know because of it's natural to want to protect yourself from trauma Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel safe to do that so Mm -hmm. the starting point is not actually to confront or crack it it's to know that you're safe enough to do so because a lot of it's we want both the strength and we want to have an impact through our strength but Mm -hmm. impact does not come through the strength it comes through vulnerability and that was the biggest like mindfuck for me when i was making the transition was this point Mm -hmm. okay as an eight i want strength but i was looking at what does strength do and i was contrasting that to what vulnerability does because what Mm -hmm. i found is when i'm vulnerable, I have more authority. And it's making that transition from strength, from power to authority. In time, authority will always overpower, if you will, strength. Yeah. And authority comes through vulnerability. So when the eight starts to see that it's actually through the vulnerability, engaging the emotions, going to some of those softer places, which is actually going to help you reach your goals of wanting to empower others and make others, the world stronger, make the world better. When you realize that that's actually the path, then some of those defenses get lowered because you realize it's actually going to move you towards your goal. It's not invasive. It's moving you toward what you actually want to be. We overly identify with our doing as our identity. And so when someone tells you you're not valued for that, it's like slicing us open. And I I think that Enneagram 8s hurt deeper than anybody recognizes because we're really good at pretending we don't. And we're really good at shutting it off. Yeah, because it goes from being external, which we can deflect, to being... Because we can convince ourselves of it for quite a while. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, part of convincing the outside world is just a byproduct of us convincing ourselves. And then when that lie falls apart, then the entire piece comes falling apart. That's why it hurts so bad, because the internal and the external collapse simultaneously. Right. I heard you in another podcast say um, when they were talking about ways of going in health and then you kind of got into, you know, however, if you betray me, you're dead to me. right? And that's so common. That's so common for Enneagram 8s. And I think it does go back to this piece where, again, we're going to feel it. I don't want to open myself up to that again, when you've already done it to me once, right? I don't even feel like it's intentional. If it was intentional, I could probably do something about it. But it's such a visceral experience of violation 
to where the you're dead to me is not a choice that is being made. It is a reaction. It, it is something I notice after the fact. I completely agree. It's not a choice I make either. Right. But why is it that eight seem to go to that place? I mean, if I, if I knew that, I probably could do something <laughs> about it. But what I notice is where it's the worst is like in my most intimate relationships, because that's where it's actually dangerous to me. That's where I could actually miss something, miss out on something, lose something that I value. And I think that's the part that I have to work on that reopening where I'm not forced to kind of keep relationship and keep those interactions, then I can kind of ignore it. You know, we can even do that with our family of origin. We can pull back from our family of origin. Not a problem. But the people who are like actually are in my house, my wife, my daughter, when those internal things happen, I am forced to solve them and I'm forced to reopen. And I'm hoping that over the years, as I establish the pattern of reopening, that I'll grow in being able to do it in more areas of my life with more people. I think that's probably going to be a lifelong project because this is something that's so core because we absorbed so early on that it wasn't safe to do that. Like we absorbed the messaging of the eight because of that problem, because of that instability that we needed to then grab and control to create our own stability. And so I think that's honestly lifelong work for me. And for me. Given the topic at hand, which is health versus unhealth, why don't you just give an overview of how you interact with health versus unhealth when it comes to the Enneagram. I come from the narrative tradition, which is a little more the Helen Palmer, as far as my, can I call it formal education? My training I know, right? in the Enneagram, <laughs> yes. but I don't know. I'm an eight. And so I don't put a lot of stock in the formal training part. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I know, but what I believe is, you know, being more hands-on and when we started, it was the Enneagram panels podcast. And I wanted to go to the roots of the Enneagram, which has been based on self-reporting. So asking people what it's like to be them. And so I would say that most of my thinking has been in conversation, has been with talking and interviewing other people of their, their different types and seeing how different things show up. So health is moving from the exaggeration to integration, to where we can actually include fully. So as an eight, we tend to be, I am what I do and I am what I function. And this constant voice struggling of it's all up to me. I have to make it happen. I have to kind of push through this and then, you know, resentment around that. And we can do this bouncing between action oriented and being in our head and thinking of the next thing to do and doing, and then mm -hmm. disconnecting from the emotions. And we start to realize that that's a place towards health and integration. When I think of it, it's very visual for me when I think of health. You can go into key words that make us more healthy, practical intuition and creativity, empowerment of others, respect, courage, protectiveness, big heartedness, generosity, all of those things. But it's very visual. I zoom out and show an integrated person, regardless of their type, is going to have those. They're going to take on a specific form, you know, perhaps in the eight mechanism. But I look at them as when we integrate really our body, head and heart. And we've been doing this season on instincts and seeing how those get integrated together. Depending on your lowest instinct, you're going to have a different kind of weakness as an eight. And you're going to have different approach to deal with your own healthiness. So I'm a social eight. And so I've always had very good relationships, very good network. If I become friends with someone, you're kind of stuck with me for life. And I have <laughs> friends of 20, 30 years that will attest to that. But my self-prez was always 
a weakness. Mm-hmm. My the care of making sure I had enough resources. I didn't really care how comfortable of a living I had. I was not very practical in my know-how. So when I look at some of the things that they say is healthy for an eight, you know, like practical intuition, it was very practical intuition when it came to the relationships. And it was really crappy when it came to my health. As far as health goes, ultimately, I go, what what is the way you need to integrate? So when, you know, I hit 40 and I decided, well, I need to do a triathlon because I'm, I'm not very active, but I'm always pushing my body. And so pain is starting to show up, which is what happens a lot with AIDS, which is like, oh, I've been just demanding of my body, but not really giving it what it needs. Therefore, I'm getting I'm getting hurt now, or I'm I'm having pain show up and it's calling my attention to say you need to care for something. And not only that, but what I found was in the movement of the body is when I feel comfortable engaging the emotions. A lot of times for AIDS, we don't move towards health in the body unless we experience pain. Mm. And pain is that wake-up call that says, oh, I actually need to do something. I I need to change something in my life because I've been demanding from my body without giving it what it needs. And that's the situation I was in as self-pres repressed. For you, it had to be physical pain. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't resonate for me. No, it's not going to resonate with you. Yeah, for me, it's emotional pain. That has to crack through to me. Yeah. Yes. And so it was moving into the physical that actually helped me with the emotional, gave me more access to it. Right. So when I just, you know, turned 40 and decided I'm going to do a triathlon because, you know, naturally take on a big challenge. <laughs> the biggest. Uh, so what I discovered that I really loved in that was these really long bike rides. So I would go out on, you know, 50, 60 mile bike rides. And what I found is there's all this time to just move and think. Mm. And if someone asked me to like engage my emotions or to really think about my past or to process certain things, I couldn't do it sitting down. I couldn't do it in a conversation. I needed the movement, which made me feel stronger. Like I'm building into my body and that gave me the freedom to access some of my emotions. And so when I'm talking about health, that was an element of integration that needed to happen for me. Mm -hmm. And I found that I needed to engage the body to reset the body first in order to re-engage the heart, which changes the strategies and the stories that come through in the mind. Boundaries are a whole other ball game. I think that eights struggle with a lot. And then we hear it a lot on our podcast is where's the line, right? Well, because I think it's very hard for the eight to know the difference between a boundary and a barrier. Yes. How much, <laughs> how much do we put ourselves out there over and over and take the hits? Well, endlessly. That's the decision is that it has to be endless because what is the other option? My wife used to work in a retirement home. And so, you know, sometimes a visit and you'd meet a bunch of different old people. And what you found out is that when you're around a ton of senior citizens, you realize that they kind of fall into one of two categories. They have either become the, you know, just sweetest, open, loving kind of, and there's just an openness or a sweetness or they're harsh and hardened and cruel Mm -hmm. and and it's like painful to be around them and every day we are creating ourselves in one of those directions we are making ourselves into being one of those people i want to be really intentional that i'm creating myself in that direction and that will require an openness that i don't want to have but if i actually want to become it is a necessity not an option I would say that's probably very true because I wouldn't change my past. I read your thing, bless them and go on. Mm. 
that spoke to me. Every word of that was just like, okay, it's okay to just love people where they were, right? It's okay to move forward and still love people who are, who are behind you. Yeah. Do you want to read it? Yeah, sure. So this had to do with this mentality. There's toxic people in my life and I need to get them out of my life. And realizing that's not actually the way I want to look at some of these people who helped form me. You know, I think of the Richard Rohr stuff about you have to transcend and include. Yes, you transcend it, but you also have to include what they gave you and the stories that they gave you and the things that they added to your life because that's the whole transformation thing. His thing about if you are not transformed by your pain, you will transmit your pain. I didn't want to do that. And so for me, I think being a body type, being an eight, and I've found that for me, moving my body in nature it's the combination of movement and beauty, which I discover my heart and it feels more free. And I was on one of these like long epic bike rides I do in order to work things through my system. It just does something in me. And it was on one of these rides. I was like, I don't want to see things this way anymore. I don't want to hold on to things like this anymore. It's not helping me and it's not really hurting them, uh, which is what I want it to do, if I'm honest. It's not doing any of that. It's just something yeah. else. And so I, I remember literally peddling through the woods and just naming things that I wanted to release, people I wanted to release, and just kind of speaking those out. And it led me to kind of this different perspective on that moving beyond people. So people, the way that they navigate their life is more through their memory, through their past, through, oh, it was so great back then. And right. I want to bring back then to now. Oh, it was better back then. Or I just have to get away from back then. And so my direction is defined by what I'm avoiding. Right. And so the first line of this poem, it says, when the way becomes more memory than vision. And it's supposed to be vision. I want to be going somewhere. Yeah. That's sort of the background that I wrote this thing called Bless Them and Go On. I'll share the whole thing. It says, when the way becomes more memory than vision and the story that led you here cannot show you how to go on. When you reach the wilderness where no maps have been drawn and terror and excitement flow through you like twins, may you respond with courage to the pull to go on. When those on either side of you are frozen and look longingly toward the familiar at their backs, the most natural sense on the surface of your skin when you stand on the edge of the unfamiliar is longing for what is known, even if it was never enough. We cannot blame or shame them, for many have traveled far enough, and in truth, they carried you to where they themselves could not go. In kindness, turn and thank them. Bless them with all your love. Bless them and go on. I love every word of that. I feel like that's the ticket to going forward. It is, but it's very hard to do when I am defined by anything other than what I'm being invited to. We see ourselves through a particular lens. They did this to me. I did this to them. I am this. I am that. We take what has happened to us and then we turn them into identity statements. I am right. traumatized in this way, hurt in this way. I am a shitty person because I did X, Y, Z. And I have all of those categories. There's things that I, I hate that I've done. And there's things that I hate that have been done to me. And and it's sort of like the releasing of all of those and, and trying to include all of those as part of my story. And 
realize the best definition is the where I'm heading. It's getting this little picture of the redeemed version of me and moving toward the invitation that is being offered, because that really is the movement towards health. It's seeing that person. And so every single person who listens to your podcast, you, me, every single one of us, we are here, we're showing up to this work because we have a sense of that redeemed story, that redeemed version of ourselves. We are following the scent toward it. And even if we cannot fully understand it, even if it is slightly blurry or it seems far off, we still have a scent of it. We can, we can feel in our bodies that pull towards it. And that's why we're doing this. And that pull, that invitation is the most defining part of our identity. And that changes the question about, am I this or am I that, or am I what happened to me or am I what I've done into I am statements. I am this person who is moving towards all of these things. I am a person who a lot has happened to and has done a lot. I am all of these things, but I am moving forward. I am moving towards this redeemed version of myself that I can sense, that I can feel, that I have a scent of on the wind that I am moving toward. point I'm trying to come to is realizing that like this is a part of my story and these things have shaped me so incredibly that I can't resist it. For me to not talk about it would be stepping away from my own growth and it could be even me bypassing it and I think probably at times I've even used it as an excuse. I spoke about that in the beginning too like I can tell you all the things I feel. I just will never feel them. Mm. So it's really easy for me to tell terrible stories about my family. Or when I talk about it, my friends would always say to me, wow, you're dealing with this really well. Mm. I'm like, well, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. And it turns out I just didn't deal with it at all. Mm. <laughs> I could just name every feeling to you, but never actually feel them. And it was a good skill for a long time till my body decided to break down. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's part of the protection mechanism. It's actually what keeps you safe. The ability to do that keeps you safe for a while until it starts to break down and it'll, it'll usually show up in the body. It'll show up in like weird ways like shingles or you get really sick because yep. your your immune system is really depleted and, and it really does affect you at that level. Do you think that you see this more with AIDS than other numbers? With the aggressive stances, you do see more adrenaline fatigue. If you're a gut number, you have gut issues. <laughs> yeah, well, I told sure. you like that was two different spans of health were... Yeah, both gut issues, yeah. yeah but... Well, understanding the connections. So one of the books that really helped me was the Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score. Actually understanding okay. how trauma is stored wow. in the body. So there's a lot of like scientific overlaps. There's a book called Driven. Let me see if I can find the author's name. It's written by Douglas Brackerman. He's a double PhD in psychology. And what he describes are a lot of people who have that dominant stance and a lot of people that I think are eight. So there's certain kinds of trauma that's stored in the body. Someone who is disconnected from their emotions and, you know, they'll be in a certain position in yoga or a boxing class. And all of a sudden these emotions will like show up like uninvited dinner party guests and just start right. spewing out over yep. them. And it's like, holy crap, what's happening to me? What's wrong with me? I need to fix this. I need to be strong again, instead of actually taking it as a signal that, no, I'm, I'm trying to show you something really important. In this book, <laughs> Driven, he talks about the genetic makeup that has stayed in certain people. So humans, we used to be hunter-gatherers. So we used to be nomadic. We're on the move. Right. 
And there's certain mechanisms that have to be in the brain in order to push on to the next thing, to be driven, to go over the next hill. So there's like this mechanism that gets inserted into the brain that there's always something new over the horizon. Those who have that part of them active, they tend to have a couple different problems. One is a dopamine hit doesn't stay in the system as long as it does for non-driven types. You have a hit of dopamine or something to feel better, but it immediately drops off because I have to look for it again and again and again. And so it's the thing that drives people forward, but it also is the part that makes them kind of hard to concentrate, hard to stay. You know, one thing they use to describe them is they have constant partial attention. So they're always paying attention to everything around them, but only partially because they're straining out information in order to get clear about what is absolutely necessary in the moment. And I think a lot of eights would probably find that book driven, very freeing. And that's something that's like helping me too, because I felt very understood, even though I think there's some nuances there that we actually understand the Enneagram world that have not translated into that world yet. There's still a ton about it that I think is really helpful in understanding that we're actually biologically wired to have some of these mechanisms. And some of them serve us really well. And some of them actually sabotage in a more modern environment where there are not saber tooth tigers. (laughs) It's always this belief that I only achieve through obsession and I have to keep up a certain speed and then I'll exhaust myself and I'll have more, you know, gut issues and get sick. I mean, I rest a lot now out of necessity. I don't have a choice anymore. But when my kids were really little and I probably needed more rest, my body didn't know how to stop. Like you said, I had to go to the point of exhaustion. And I think a lot of us do. Mm -hmm. And that's the only place we know where to stop. I really had a hard time with meditation. They actually talk about how driven types, when they start meditating, they actually experience more anxiety. Yes, for sure. Yes, because it's always been there. That anxiety was already there, but you were pushing it down. You were ignoring it. You were able to silence it through the strength. So what you are doing is you're not actually becoming more anxious, but you're sort of removing the band-aid that's covering the wound and you're seeing that bad anxiety is there and then you can start to focus and learn and bring it down a little bit it is a process we are so excited to share something new we've been working on we have now launched the enneagram 8 community this is a community where enneagram 8s can come together to feel seen and heard for the heart of who they are a place where you can just be you If you're interested in joining us here, go to the Enneagram8community.com to sign up. So when I first started to try and deal more with meditation, my door (laughs) into like the breathing methods and stuff like that were really difficult until I did the Wim Hof breathing method because it's extremely intense. Okay. So Wim Hof is this Dutch crazy person they call the Iceman. 26 world records for like cold immersion and stuff like that. So the thing that actually prompted my whole journey, which uh, I thought was a physical health, but it actually led to a lot of emotional health, was I read this book called What Doesn't Kill Us. And I immediately loved the title. And uh, <laughs> But it was like how freezing temperatures, elevation, and it can help us renew our lost evolutionary strength. I thought, well, that's kind of fascinating. So I started doing cold immersion stuff to like wake the system up. And, you know, because I discovered it, you know, in November, December in Boston, So I'm doing shirtless runs in the woods in like (laughs) 15 degree weather. And, you know, it just felt so badass. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But as far as like getting in touch with the heart part, like there was something that like my body needed to feel strong enough that my heart could handle 
it if I was going to touch it. I think there was some mm-hmm. weird connection there for me. But the Wim Hof breathing exercise was the first thing that allowed me really to meditate because in it, you're not sitting just passively calmly. You actually start with a you know, 30 to 40 breaths of hyperventilation. So it's very intense breathing. Mm-hmm. So there's a real power that can happen in, in the breathing method. And then after 30 breaths, you breathe all the way out and you hold your lungs empty. It wasn't uncommon as I did this to hold my breath with my lungs empty for over two minutes, two and a half minutes, sometimes three minutes. And something happened in that space where my whole system actually calmed down in a way that I'd never felt before. Like everything was settled. Everything felt safe. Any kinds of, you know, memories or emotions felt like they could come up because everything Mm -hmm. was completely calm. You feel like tingling sensations around the body. And then I would breathe in a big breath in. You hold at the top for like 10 seconds and then force the air almost like at the top of your head. But this long feeling. And then after that, everything felt a little bit more accessible. Right. I've heard there's like a link between health and being able to observe the things that normally would be a threat to you in a neutral way. And do you think that that is what that gives you because it calms you down? So suddenly thoughts and feelings that you normally would have a visceral reaction to, you can actually let them in and observe them and interact with them. Yeah, they felt more neutral as opposed to you know, threatening. The intensity of it sort of allowed my system to calm down. So that was super helpful as like a door into meditation for me, but it was not easy at first. It's why I hate yoga. (laughs) Yoga also makes me anxious. I'm getting better. I've started doing like seven to 10 minute yoga Mm -hmm. stretching videos and I'm loving it. But anything over like the 12 minute mark and I start to lose. Now, is that true if you're in a group doing yoga or just when you're like alone? I would never go in a group and do yoga (laughs) because I would I would quit real fast. I love yoga doing it in in a I haven't done it in a while, but it was something that was really helpful to me. I think because it is what got rid of my back issues. So I was like, oh, this is great. I have this weird genetic thing where I was born with no L5. So I have one less vertebrae. All of the other vertebrae take an extra amount of pressure and tension. So I've had lower back problems my whole life until I did some yoga. It was like a lifesaver <laughs> for me. But the group thing, it was like accountability. Like there's something about my social, I think that was activated by that, that it was helpful. <laughs> One of the things we do in my second level group of group coaching is we do this month on integrating the three centers. And I say you have to start with the body and then we do a heart piece and a head piece and it's three different weeks. But something I do in integrating the body all the time is I take clients to this experience where I have them meditate and bring whatever they're frustrated about, angry about, anxious about, sad about, bring all those emotions to their awareness. And then I stand them up and I have them go through these body movements that are rapid and they bring their heart rate up. And then I have them sit down and then say, okay, now share about what your relationship is to those same emotions. Mm -hmm. I just did this with a group last night and I asked them to put in the comments, like, how do you feel different having heard this about those emotions having gone through that? And the chat just filled up every single person. Like, they don't seem as big of a deal. They seem further away. I right. feel like I can handle it. You actually change the relationship to those emotions. Mm-hmm. Then they don't feel like you're going to get taken over, which is what the eight can tend to fear sometimes. Yeah. 
if I go there, I am going to get swallowed. Just as so yeah, physical. It, it, it is. It's very physical. And that's the resistance. It's almost this resistance that's very physical. Yeah. And we can't even name it. You could say, I'm going to take it over. But we, we don't name it. No. The, the thing is, if we were able to name it, we'd be able to face it. Mm-hmm. The reason it's scary is because we can't name it. All we can name it is scary, 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 not safe, dangerous. Mm-hmm. You put yourself in a state. It is a state of power. Right. But it's also a state of vulnerability. Yeah, I'm beginning to wonder if we have to fortify ourselves with some kind of strength before we can face the weakness. So we can't just jump into the thing that makes us feel weak without first, like building ourselves up in another way. Kind of like you were saying, you needed your body to be strong before you could open yourself up to. Extremely well said. Yes, you have to fortify your body in order to access the emotions. But the problem is sometimes what we do is we fortify our bodies and then we say, whoo, all right, I feel strong again. Exactly. Exactly. We just don't finish the homework. We stop partway. Right. We do the first part of the homework, which is to actually put ourselves in a stronger state. But then that stronger state can be used in order to feel safe enough to engage the emotions, or we can put ourselves in a stronger state so that we can actually then say, okay, I'm going to bypass the feeling or the emotion. Yeah, we've been talking a lot about how what stops us from growing is just how functional we can be without having to do it. We're just fine. Like we we can, we're very capable people and highly functional a lot of the time. And so why would you put yourself through that to be what you can't even predict because you've never experienced is a whole other higher level of function, right? But you'd have to see it to believe it, right? (laughs) Because we need to like touch the thing before we believe it. Well, and then others put that, others superimpose that on you too. Like you're the one who's strong for everyone else. Like you're the one who's got it together. Like you're such a Superman, you know? Yeah. And then with that added pressure that is both internal and then it gets doubled down by, by the way other people see us. Mm -hmm. Therefore we think, well, if we don't want to like lower our guard to we're afraid that we could let ourselves down and make ourselves and put ourselves in a vulnerable position. But then if that doesn't get us the other people's perspective of, needing us to be strong for them, that might get the Mm -hmm. better of us as well. How do we come home to who we are? If we're aiming for where we're heading, like where are we heading? Yeah, I believe that deep down, every single one of you listening, like you are the best expert on you. You are the one who knows how to come home to yourself. I know what helps me come home. And the universal is looking for a particular, so I can share what helps me come home. But when it comes to in general, I know you're going to need to come into your body. I know you're going to have to integrate your heart. And I know you're going to have to deal with the mind. I know you're going to have to reset your body, make it feel strong so that you can re-engage the heart and engage with beauty and that which allows you to have this incredible tapestry of highs and lows in your life. And I know that you have to integrate your mind and you have to watch for the traps in the stories you tell yourself and Mm -hmm. the questions you ask yourself all day. What is that tape that is running all day and how do we reprogram it? How do we take these statements of, am I good enough? Am I going to be able to do it? Am I enough? Am I strong enough to handle the situation? And we flip those am I's into I am's. What do you know you are? Mm Because me, like, I know I am friend. I am a creator. I Mm -hmm. am a connector. I am someone who wants to see people thrive. Change your am I's into I am's. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And as you do this, as you lean into all these different aspects of yourself, you will engage into your version of health. And I guarantee you it's going to come through a few different channels. One of them is what do you already love? Not what you take on an obligation because you know you can take anything on. Yes, yes. What do you lean into because you know you love it? Joe, mm-hmm. you don't you don't do MMA because just because, oh, I should do this to be healthy. Like there's something mm-hmm. you get in. It roots you in something in the way that you are. Just mm-hmm. like I now find that like trail running and I've always hated running, but trail running tolerable. I'm dodging rocks. This is fun. Yeah, that's my favorite. <laughs> the long bike rides, the that is something that's integration for me. Now that I can like weep at the scene of Mo- in Moana, where you know Grandma is coming to run the boat <laughs> after the whole world has fallen apart, and you know she's asking her, "Do you know who you are?" And I'm like crying at that scene because like I know that integration for me means I am Grandma, that I'm functioning as Grandma in people's lives. Where I'm calling out saying, do you know who you are? And then I'm helping them call out who they are in that space. So what does coming home look like for you? You have to be the great architect of that. But that should be one of the dominant questions of your life. How do Mm -hmm. I come home? What do I truly love that is good for me? What helps me lean into the strength of my body and the openness of my heart and the sharpness of my mind? Mm-hmm. What is that? So we've talked a lot about not so much am I? I don't know if eights do that a lot. Say am I? We we tend to actually make really firm I am statements. I think where we go wrong is we make I am's out of things that are actually lies because of the story we've told ourselves since we were little or the story our caregiver told us. And so we did a, actually a lot of talking about the I am statements that we've been telling ourselves for years that have actually harmed us. Mm. And one of the I am's that I always tell myself is, I am dangerous, right? It's a a very big I am I told myself because I was part of a church that was very uh, legalistic and someone like me just caused trouble. So I began to wear I am almost like an F you badge. I was like, yeah, you bet I'm dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> And eight, you can feel it, that bravado thing. Yeah, I am badass or, or whatever. Yeah. Whereas the truer I am is actually I am tender. I am I... a walking heart. <laughs> yeah. So we lie. We lie to ourselves. Right? Because I have to own it. I have to own, I guess I am dangerous, right? Because then yeah. if I make it mine... I can survive that. Yeah. And and what I hear in that I am dangerous, there's a dual side of that. I am dangerous to who? I am dangerous yeah. in what situation? Because there's times where I am dangerous, that statement is an awareness. Like I'm I could be a threat in the situation and I might need to have a way to integrate some different energies so I can pull towards essence instead of being dangerous. Oh, and yeah. there's other yep. times where it is a badge of honor. Like people mm-hmm. are trying to fuck shit up and I am dangerous to the bullies. I am dangerous mm-hmm. to the person pulling the threat. And so yeah. uh, even a statement like that, it can have this dual meaning. It can have an awareness in it. It can have a fear of self in it. So those kinds of statements are so flexible. You know, my dear friend, Sarah, who works with me, she's in the next room uh, editing a podcast right now. She's a sexual eight. And I met her on one of the panels we did a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we got to have lunch. So we have lunch and we sit down and we talk for a couple hours and we, you know, walk around Newburyport where we're like saying goodbye. And she just like gives me a hug and she goes, thank you. And I said, for what? She goes, thank you that I wasn't too much for you. Yeah. Oh, I know. And it's that feeling because the I am too much 
I know. There is the flip question in it. Is the always walking into a station, am I going to be too much for them? So it, I always it, say I am too much. I make an assumption that I will be. Yes. Which means I'm it not open. Yeah. I'm not really open. I'm already decided, right. no, I am going to. And then I'm pleasantly surprised if I'm not. Right. So. Yeah. And that was a that was a situation that I found myself in for years without being able to name it. And it is helpful that, you know, podcasts like this are out there because we are naming it. You can name it. You get to do yes. that. And it is a it is a powerful starting point. But you have to pull those apart. Like how many traps are in that statement? Depending on you know, different aids. I know aids that it's a question. Am I going to be too much the situation? And for others, it is a statement. It's it's it does go both ways. And it's I wonder if it has the... to do with how many times you've been put in that position. For, yeah, it probably sure. has to do with trauma. Yeah. But there's also this element of not just past experiences, but it's this desire to belong, but not want to just mm-hmm. fit in. And that tension can create different aspects of that question or different ways that that question is experienced and perceived. And you accompany that with the past experiences. And that is definitely going to be <laughs> an interesting yes. result. It's a cocktail. <laughs> There's a lot of freedom in taking ownership for our stuff, too. Yeah, ownership um, is a really big part of that. I need to be reminded more than I need to be taught. And so many of the things that I've said or that I've put out in the world, I'm, I have to go back to. And I kind of almost put them out in the world as a way to hold myself accountable to staying in that space and kind of coming back to it again and, and learning that we are affected by what has affected other people. And that's what I love about those things is they're, they're these little time capsules of moments that have affected me. And which is why I think everyone needs to do this. I think everyone needs to become a student of their own story and write down in their own words what helps them. And I love when people borrow mine, but ultimately it's to get them to their own. It's to own some of those things. Like I was just referencing uh, those Richard Rohr phrase about transcend and include. Those are so much a part of who I am now. And then I turn it into these other words and then people will turn it into their own language and they'll remind themselves. And that's so much of how people move forward and grow and why I you know, try to live as out loud as possible, which is what <laughs> you guys are doing too, which is what's so amazing about what you're doing. It's getting easier, but it was terrifying at the beginning for sure. Right? To be so vulnerable at the beginning. Vulnerable. <laughs> There's a tendency to want to project like, am I going to be okay in the next moment? And just knowing that I'm deeply okay in this moment. And that's a one I have to return to because I don't always believe it. I'm going to come back to it. Fake it till you make it. It's my motto right now. It's so funny. I've been thinking about that phrase for quite a while. Try this one on for you because I'm moving away from that one. Because (laughs) saying the fake it part feels inauthentic to me. And so I think I resist it in certain circumstances. But what I'm thinking about is the visualization of when I first started playing guitar and how I was trying to put my fingers on this awkward position to form a C chord. Everything about it feels strange and odd and unnatural. And so lately I've been switching my internal monologue from the fake it to you make it, which is a lot catchier to do it unnaturally (laughs) until you do it naturally. I know that if I do something enough, even if it feels unnatural, eventually it will become natural. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly at first. Have you struggled with that in the past? I've had enough things in my life that have necessitated a learning arc that that one's pretty deep in there as far as like, I really do believe it. And I really have experienced it a lot. 
I have been a serial hobbyist where I go into a world and I become completely obsessed with it and I learn everything about it. And I'm now comfortable in the unnatural state because I know that if I just stick with it, it'll become more natural. What I want for my life is I want to be open to everyone. I want to feel safe in everyone. I want a sharp mind and a soft heart and thick skin. And I can't do it yet, but every day I'm moving toward that person because that to me is my redeemed self. Rapid Fire with Jim Zartman. How do you take your coffee? With oat milk cream. What is your superpower? Whatever I want it to be that day. <laughs> Yoga, do you love it or hate it? It is a necessity because I have no L5. Three words to describe you. Awesome. Square times three. <laughs> Bad at math. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. I don't know. It depends on the day. Friend, creator, obsessed with life. What can make you cry? Moana. I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. it. <laughs> Grandma. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it is. I find that it happens in group coaching a lot. When someone's sharing something with me and I reflect back to them and I call out the good in them, that is always a place I find my tears. Mm-hmm. Speaking the truth to another about how amazing they actually are, the Mm. wonder and the awe of that other person. Mm -hmm. It taps into all of that empowerment stuff. It taps into like the core of who I am. And that is the thing that always surprises me with my tears. And I welcome them in that space because I know like it is the root and the core of me right there. What percentage of the time do you wear your seatbelt? 100%. No! That's shocking. I'm actually a complete seatbelt Nazi. I always have been. When I was a kid, Rich Mullins died that way. So I have been always fascinating. straight up with the seatbelt. That's belt. why we do these, because uh, sometimes you get surprised. Where is uh, one of your happy places? Biggest happy place is on my stand-up paddleboard to do surfing at Nahant Beach, which is three miles away from here. Oh, awesome. Where do you usually sit in a room full of people? I don't like being in a room full of people. I know, right? But if you have to be, do you like where do you sit? Next to the most interesting person. Ha! Okay, something that scares you. Cave diving where you're crawling on your belly underground for a couple miles. Yuck. Pitch black and you're single file. It was the most terrifying thing of my life because if the person in front of you stops, you're screwed. No control. So it, <laughs> nothing makes you feel more out of control yeah. or trapped than being in that situation. It's my nightmare death. Wow. Optimist, pessimist, or realist? Yes. (laughs) Are you easily offended? No. It is a goal of my life to be unoffendable. Oh, me too. But I'm not good at it. (laughs) So good for you. Where do you focus? The past, present, or future? All three feel like they coexist. If you were a song, what song would you be? Oh, you say a sound or a song? Song. Oh. (laughs) You heard sound? That's awesome. I'm adding that to the list. If you were a sound, it is it bad that the first sound that came to mind for me was when Jim Carrey turns in the car in in Dumb and Dumber. He says, do you want to hear the most annoying sound (laughs) in the world? But that's what came to mind. I think it would probably be a song I wrote called In Wonder. Mm -hmm. In Wonder, we gaze at the luminous dark. In wonder, our wounds become holy art. Mm -hmm. In wonder, our struggle is sacred again. In wonder, our frailty is now a dear friend. So may these altars become tables. May the broken lift the able. May the shaken know they're stable as we learn to live more graceful. Oh, that could be an eight anthem. Do you have a YouTube channel? Can I link to that? I do not. Is there any way to like access that song or no? Oh, no. I would have to check and see if it's on YouTube. Jim. <laughs> I knew it. Okay. 
it's on my Instagram. <laughs> okay. It's on my Instagram <laughs> somewhere in the past. You think you like didn't want to share your art or something. <laughs> I'm going to look and see if it's on YouTube because I'm very curious. I should put that song. You on should. There. I'll link to it if you do. Okay. That's funny. Well, that was, that was it. Uh, you did great. Okay. <laughs> Super appreciate it. Thanks for everything, Jim. Thank you so much for all the insight. And I feel like I kind of got a counseling session out of this. (laughs) Absolutely. It's my honor. (laughs) All right. Take care. All right. Bye all. That's it for today. We hope by now you've realized there's a lot more going on under the surface. And you'll continue to follow along as we take you inside the armor. (laughs) 